to take your Bibles, or if you'd like one of the ones in the rack in front of you, and join us at the passage that Paul has just read for us from Matthew chapter 27. We have now, um, as of next Sunday, we'll have spent a total of six months looking in Matthew's gospel. I don't know if you remember, I often say people never remember the pastor's former sermons except the pastor, uh, the one that preached them. But months and months and months ago, when we first started this study in Matthew, it was around Christmas, was a year ago, if I remember right, Christmas of 2015, and we had a little theme phrase or sentence, all authority, all power, all nations. And we looked, and we have looked over the last three, first three months, then we took a break, and now the second three months, of how Jesus exhibits the authority and the power to send us out in that power with that authority out to all the nations. And next Sunday morning, we will finish in Matthew chapter 28 as Jesus gives us that great commission. But as Greg said so well a few moments ago, it's so easy for us to jump to the risen Christ, the empty tomb, the empty cross. But today, we, like those soldiers, are going to sit and watch him there. Can you bear to do that for 30 minutes? To see him there. Matthew, the author of this gospel was brilliance a word we throw on line. He was obviously a very well educated, very well worded man. By that I mean he was not perhaps quite like Peter the fisherman or some of the others. You don't have to be extremely insightful to think about the fact that the Romans going into a province that they had conquered and finding men to serve as mathematicians and accountants to handle the taxes that were being paid by the people would not have chosen someone who was totally illiterate and unable to string together a sentence. And so Matthew, from his writing, from the way in which he chooses under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, the words that he pens in his gospel shows us some of that intelligence. One of the things that Matthew does in this gospel a lot is to deal with matters of irony, where you'll see something happen, and ironically, it turns right around on its head and becomes just the opposite. He was the only one of the four gospel writers to go back by the Holy Spirit's memory and write down Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he talks about blessed are the poor in spirit for they shall be great in the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for they will be blessed. All kinds of things in Matthew's gospel. I won't take time now to even give you many more examples because in this passage alone, we see so many examples of how how Matthew takes something that looks one way and then we see through it and we see the irony of it when it turns to be just the opposite. So this morning, I want us to do some acknowledging as we look at Christ on the cross. I want us to acknowledge four basic truths 
And then out of that, we'll have time for us to respond with thanks and with a commitment to imitating Christ. We begin with the very title itself. The title of who Jesus is for us as his followers. And ironically, it comes from a slanderous, mocking group of probably close to 600 Roman soldiers. Matthew is very careful in verse 27 to say that the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the headquarters and gathered the whole company around him. And that word company in the Greek is a very specific word, cohort, which was 600 troops. Now, that doesn't mean they were exactly 600 to the man. But it was not just 10 guys kind of hitting up, beating up on him a little bit. This was a huge group of military men, rough Roman guards, soldiers, and one Jewish insurrectionist who had already been beaten up twice and now Pilate has turned this would-be king over to them. And it's interesting the way Matthew explains what happens inside the praetorium, inside the palace or the headquarters in verses 27 to 31. And I, if I had had a little bit more pre-thought, I would have asked Al to help me and we would have written these verses in such a way that you could see them. I'm going to have to get you to see them in your mind's eye with me the way that Matthew wrote them because they're called a chiasm. And a chiasm is a, a form of writing where you start at the, at the beginning and end with certain concepts and then you move toward a middle statement that becomes the pinnacle or the summation of the whole thing. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Now, I'm going to have to just talk you back and forth. So look inside your Bible if you have one. If not, just listen kind of carefully. We're talking about verses 27 to 31 of Matthew 27. In verse 27, it talks about where they took Jesus into the headquarters. And in verse 31, at the very end, it's about how they took him away to be crucified. So the very first thing and the very last thing in this passage are them moving Jesus from one place to another. If you look at verse 28, you see they dressed him in a robe. If you look at the, end of verse, at the, at the middle of verse 31, they strip him of the robe. If you look at the next part of verse 28... It says, they, uh, excuse me, verse 29, they twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, placed a reed in his hand. And then in verse 30, it says, they spit on him, took the reed, and hit him on the head. So you have references to the head. See how it's working? You start from the extremes, the top and the bottom, and you move in one step at a time until you get to the middle phrase. So it's almost like the waves coming into the shore and then going back out. They took him into the praetorium. They put a robe on him. They beat him around the head or put something on in his hand and on his head. They make a statement that we'll talk about in a second. Then they hit him in the head, beat him up, take the robe back off of him and lead him out the door. You see how it flows in and flows back out? You come in, you put a robe and something on his head. You beat him on the head, take off the robe and then send him out. But in between that flowing in and flowing out, there's a statement right in the middle. And that statement is in verse 29. They knelt down before him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews. Hail, a word used only for Caesar. King, a word only used for the monarch. Hail, king of the Jews. And isn't it ironic 
that that, in fact, is who Jesus is. But not just king of the Jews. He's king of the Gentiles. He's king of all who believe in him. He is king of heaven and earth. He is king of all creation. He is king of everything that ever has been, that ever will be. He alone is king. And so, ironically, this title that they gave him in mockery and in scorn and in rejection and in their sinfulness has come for those of us who are his followers to be the greatest accolade we can give him. He is my king. He is my ruler. He is my sovereign. What does a king do? Well, a king protects his subjects. A king is the one that will stand and lead out between the enemy and his people. And so our king steps out between us and our enemy, takes the punishment so that we don't have to. Would you today acknowledge in your own heart who Jesus is to you? Would you be willing in just a few moments to bow your head in honor before your king and say, yes, Jesus, you are my king, master of my life. Lord of all that I have, all that I am, I have no life. Only Christ is all I have. Well, then once we get that in place, now the other pieces fall in. Where is his throne? Well, we see it. Look at verse 33. They come to a place called Golgotha, which means a skull place. That word translated into the Latin is calvaria, where we get the word Calvary. If you ever wonder where Calvary came from, it came from the Latin version, did I say Greek? The Latin version of the Greek word Golgotha. Golgotha means the place of a skull. Maybe because it was in the shape of a skull, probably because it was a place where people routinely were taken to die. It was death row. There's a reason why they call it death row, death row. And they called this Golgotha the place of the skull because it was a place where people went to die. And they gave him wine mixed with gall to drink, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. After crucifying, they divided his clothes by casting lots, and they sat down and were guarding him there. And above his head, they put the charge against him in writing, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And then two criminals were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Time fails me to pull all of the ironies out of these few verses, but let me just give you a few of them. They offer him a cup to drink, but he will not drink it because he is drinking the cup of his father's wrath. He is raised up above them, but they sit down at his feet and look up at him as if it were in respect. They watch him as he dies. They put a title above his head, and in his great glorious rule, they put his sergeants at arms, two insurrectionists, two men of ill repute by him when really we are his ones that stand by him. And they put him in a place called the place of the skull. In medieval, in the medieval church, they believed that this was the very spot where Adam himself had died. Now, there may be a little bit of mythology to that. I'll just be honest with you. But I'll tell you one thing I know. I know spiritual Adam died at that place, didn't he? The spiritual, sinful Adam died with Christ there. 
never to be raised again, though Christ was. This was Jesus' throne, the cross, the place where he did the work that a king does to stand in the gap between his people and their enemy. Not a victim, not a weakling, not a coward, not a failure, but one who gives his life of his own will for the people that he came to save. This is the throne from which Jesus rules and reigns. We saw all of that in Psalm 22. You see, for us, this is not a failure. This is a fulfillment. We had been told a thousand years earlier about the things that would happen to the Messiah. But what's so interesting is that toward the end of Matthew 22, in verses 27 and 28, the prophecy goes on when it says, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. And we stand and we say, amen. He is the ruler and the place from which he rules, his throne is a cross. So if that's his throne, what is his temple? Look at verses 39 and 40. Now we begin hearing the people. Isn't it interesting that in Matthew's gospel, there's very little about Jesus' physical suffering. There's a little bit after we get past verse 44, but not a lot. Most of it focuses on people and what they say and how they respond to Jesus. So when we get to Jesus' temple, we read in verses 39 and 40 another irony. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him. These are just the passers-by, the people going to and fro on the road as they headed into town, headed out of town. They always put these crucifixion spots at a major crossroads as a reminder to the subject people, this is what happens to you if you think you can mess with Rome. And what did they say to him? <laughs> the one who would demolish the sanctuary and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross, they could see on the top of the Jerusalem Mount the shining dome of the temple. They could see it standing there. They had been there to worship. The walls were great and thick. The lights, the altar, the laver, all of the things that were there that made it the place where they came to find forgiveness for their sins. And this Jesus said, I will destroy this temple and rebuild it. But they didn't understand that there was a new temple. The temple was Jesus himself. Do you hear in the people's words, if you are the Son of God, do this? Does that sound familiar to anybody? Have we ever heard those words before? Did anybody else ever say to Jesus, if you are God's Son, just turn these stones into bread, why don't you? If you're God's Son, jump off the pinnacle of the temple because the angels will catch you and then everybody will believe in you. You see, these people unwittingly were the tools of Satan himself. I don't think any of them said, I'm going to take the role of Satan and I'm going to beat up on this guy verbally. No. But Satan used their taunts to tempt. This was the last temptation of Christ. The temptation to come off the cross and save himself. And yet, he did not. For a reason we'll talk about it in just a second. But in doing that, he became the temple, and the sacrifice. If you, let me read to you from Hebrews. Write down somewhere in your notes, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 24 to 26. The writer of Hebrews says, For the Messiah did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, 
aka the temple, which is only a model of the true one, but into heaven itself so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. He did not do this to offer himself many times as the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. Otherwise, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin. How? By the sacrifice of himself. His death robs the value from the temple and the temple system. No more the need to go again and again and again with the blood of bulls and goats and lambs to try to seek some type of remission from sin. Now the true Lamb of God has died. The sacrifice has been made once for all, and there is now no more physical temple. And Peter tells us where the temple is now. Take a second and look around. Look across the aisle. Look behind you. Look in front of you. Go ahead, do it. Do it. Look around. Look, 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 look. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the temple that God is building brick by brick, stone by stone, bound together, as we said last week, with the mortar of God's Holy Spirit. We are his temple. His throne is a cross. His temple is his people. But what about his task? What is Jesus' task? Well, we hear this, ironically, from the very religious leaders that coordinated this whole process Look at what it says in verse 41. Matthew tells us in the same way the chief priests with the scribes, the elders mocked him and said, ha, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He has put his trust in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am God's son. And even the criminals mocked him and taunted him. Isn't it ironic that they said in verse 42, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. They knew that Jesus had saved others. They had heard. They had seen Lazarus. They had heard about the ones that had been healed from their sicknesses. They had heard about the ones that had been fed with the five loaves and two fishes. They knew that Jesus had done these great and mighty things, and yet they said, but he cannot save himself. Well, that wasn't quite true. Could Jesus have saved himself? Of course he could have. It's not that he could not. It was that he would not. Why? Because he could not save the world if he saved himself. He could not save others, and so his task was to die for believers so that he could save them by not saving himself. And that's probably the greatest irony. The greatest miracle of all was the non-miracle of Jesus not flying off that cross, striking them dead, and announcing his kingdom. That would have given him great glory, but no kingdom. Jesus' task was to save believers. You say, wait, 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 Pastor. Why do, you, why do you say save believers? Why don't you say save sinners? Well, because all believers are sinners. But not all sinners are believers. And whether you believe that Jesus died for every single living person on the planet but only saves those that surrender the lives of him, or whether you believe that God chooses those who are saved or not, the bottom line is the ones that are saved are the ones who believe. And just in case you need a proof text, I know how you are. You're good Bereans. Let me read for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 20. Here's what Paul says to the church at Corinth. 
Where is the philosopher? Where is the scholar? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save who? Those who believe through the foolishness of the message preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. So I can say with full assurance, with unapologetic boldness, Jesus Christ's task was to come to save those who would believe. That was his job. His title, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. His throne, a cross. His temple, his people. His task, to bring salvation. Are you willing today to acknowledge those four things? If so, I want to invite you to join me in a word of prayer. I want you to pray together and just acknowledge that. And then after we pray, I want us to think for just a few minutes about how we respond to that acknowledgement. So would you pray with me? Father, the irony of Matthew's gospel is that all of the things that people said against him have actually become true. All of the things that were designed by evil men to destroy him, to discredit him, have become for us reality. The mocking title becomes our statement of affirmation. The sign of loss and shame becomes his throne. The people, ragtag though we are, called out from every people and nation and tribe and tongue, become his temple. And saving us becomes his task. Father, we acknowledge that this is the power of the cross. The ironic power of the cross. And today, Father, we bow our heads before you, acknowledging that Jesus is our Lord. Amen. Look at Jesus on the cross if you can. Don't look at your Bible. Don't look at your spouse or your kids. Raise your eyes up. See the man upon the cross. How do we respond to this one who we call king? How do we respond to all that he suffered, all that he did on our behalf? I think there are two things. Rivet your eyes on Christ. And let me suggest that the first thing we must do is give him thanks. We must thank him. We take Jesus, we throw him right into the middle of the cesspool of sin and say, here is a savior for sinners like us. A real 
for the sins of the world kind of Messiah. From the inhumane terror of the massacre of people in World War II to the junior high jokester poking fun at the fat kid on the playground. Jesus knows our sin. He sympathizes with our weakness. For the sin of lying to your mother about what happened to your report card, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Thank you, Jesus. For the sin of cheating on last year's income taxes, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Thank you, Jesus. For the sin of lusting after your neighbor's spouse, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Thank you, Jesus. For the sin of spending too much on yourself to the neglect of your brothers and sisters in Christ, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Thank you, Jesus. For the sin of drinking too much rum and coke at your brother's wedding, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Thank you, Jesus. For the sin of thinking too highly of yourself, Pastor, while you preach on the sufferings of Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Thank you, Jesus. For the sins of abortion, adultery, anxiety, Arrogance, backbiting, bearing false witness, bitterness, blasphemy, boasting, bribery, complaining, coveting, contention, coarse joking, deceit, defrauding, despising the poor, dishonoring the government, disregarding the Lord's people on the Lord's day, disrespecting your parents and elders, envy, evil thoughts, fornication, fortune-telling, fraud, gambling, giving grudgingly or not giving at all, gluttony, gossip, greed, harsh words, hating your brother, holding a grudge, idleness, idolatry, immodesty, losing your temper, lust, lying, malice, murder, prayerlessness, racism, rage, rape, resisting the Holy Spirit, returning insult for insult, rioting, scoffing, selfish ambition, showing favoritism, slander, sloth, speaking idle words, stealing, unlawful divorce, violence, witchcraft, loving the world, loving yourself, not loving your neighbor or enemy or fellow Christian or God. To name only a few sins. For all those and more, behold, your crucified king. Give thanks. Give thanks. Just imagine what the weight of the sins of the world felt like. Just imagine bearing all the guilt and the shame.
give him thanks.